so we're starting a, uh, a new series, a very brief series this morning in the little book of Ruth, um, unoriginally calling it Redeeming Love, uh, because it's just, it's just what the book's about. And um, I decided that I could not preach through the book of Judges without also preaching the book of Ruth. Judges, as you know, is a book full of tragic stories. But Ruth is almost like an appendix to the book of Judges, an appendix of hopefulness. Ruth takes place during the period of the Judges. And it shows us that while God's people were just making a mess... He was doing something very special, kind of behind the scenes. And I can't wait for you to see what God was up to. Okay? This is uh, God's Word beginning in Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1, on the screen for you in English and in Spanish. It says this In the days when the judges ruled, There was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Now, if you remember, names, though they're hard to say in the Bible, are very important. And what I want to do is I want to read this again, but this time I'm going to replace the names with what they mean. Okay? And this is what it says. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from House of Bread in Judah went to sojourn in the country of who's your daddy? He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was my God is king. And the name of his wife was pleasant. And the names of his two sons were weak and frail. Really interesting start, okay? Do you see how this is being set up? Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. And the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Okay, so my God is king dies, leaving pleasant a widow, then weak and frail also die, not surprising. 
But this is a, a really powerful opening scene. And there's a lot of important information that I don't want you to miss here. Okay? The first is the irony that they are having a famine in a town known as the House of Bread. This town is located inside the promised land, which was promised to be a land flowing with milk and honey, not a land of famine. They leave the house of bread in the promised land to go to the land of Moab. And if you remember from Judges, Moabites were sort of the redneck cousins of the Israelites. They descended from Lot's, Lot being the nephew of Abraham. They descended from Lot's incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter. I'll just kind of leave it at that. So that's where they go. They were also military enemies of Israel at that time in the judges period. So this family had to be pretty desperate to go from Bethlehem to Moab looking for food. And I doubt that they received a warm welcome when they got there. Naomi's sons ended up marrying Moabite women, which was, from an Israelite's perspective, not ideal. And because they were foreigners in Moab, the women that they married probably were from a lower social class than they were. Neither of those women were able to have children. For ten years they try. And then their husbands died. Not a great start to a story. But what I want to do first is I want us to stop and just consider Naomi. Naomi is sort of like the female version of Job. Do you know the story of Job? Um, Naomi loses her husband. She loses both of her sons. Nothing seems to be working out for her. And, and God doesn't explain it to her. Now, at least Job had a conversation with God. And in the end, at the book, at the end of Job, you know that God restores what was lost. He, he provides Job with a new family and, and new inheritance possessions. But that doesn't happen with Naomi. Naomi was a widow with no children, which made her one of the most fragile people in society. She was completely powerless, and she would be quickly forgotten. And in order to understand this story and where it's going, you have to understand Naomi. We have to stop and consider her pain, her loss. Walk a mile in her shoes, so to speak. And ask the question, where was God? How is this happening? Why is this the story? That's the question that the readers would be asking back then. And that's what we need to ask. So let's see if we can find God. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. 
For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Quick pause. This was an act of compassion by Naomi to try and send her daughters-in-law back to their homes because she sees no hope for them in Bethlehem. The culture expected the young women to go with Naomi. That was their most important connection. But she, in compassion, is saying, no, you don't have to come with me. You can go home. Let's find out what they decide to do. Verse 10. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I, say, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me. For your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. In other words, Orpah left. Okay, Orpah did the sensible thing. She took advantage of Naomi's blessing. And I really don't think we should fault her for that. Sometimes Orpah gets a bad, a bad read. But um, she does, for practical reasons, the very the good thing. It's Ruth's choice to stay with Naomi that is actually radical and dangerous even. And completely selfless. You might even call it reckless. She stays with Naomi. Verse 15. Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. She says, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, 
And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. This is, um, this is really incredible. It's incredible because Naomi basically tells Ruth to go back to her own gods. The implication is this. Naomi says, Ruth, my God is probably going to fail you like he's failed me. Just go try your luck back home. Go back to Moab. And Ruth completely rejects that argument. She, she even appeals to Naomi's God. She says, your God is my God. That is absolutely incredible considering the circumstances that they are in. Her husband, dead. Naomi's husband, dead. No children. No prospects that they know of, right? This is, this is really an Abraham kind of faith during a period when Israel had mostly abandoned God. It is remarkable. And in some ways, in my opinion, it's actually even more radical than Abraham because Abraham at least had God speaking to him and making promises along the way. Ruth has... No evidence that God is going to fix this at all. And she still goes. It's unbelievable. It's really cool. And it sounds like God. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returns and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And that's how our story begins. We have two women, both of them widows. They have no children they have no support. And one of them seems to have no hope. Naomi tells the other women in town, don't call me pleasant anymore. <laughs> because I'm not. She says, call me Mara instead. Mara means bitter. I'm not pleasant. I am bitter. And we can understand why she feels this way, right? She's grieving. She's suffering. She has no idea why God is letting this happen. And if you've ever felt pain or loss or loneliness, 
then you understand. Her faith is not gone, but she's speaking out of that pain. Does that make sense? She's, she doesn't see a way out of it. She's too old to have children. Which means in, in that culture she has no hope of finding a husband. You might summarize it by saying she feels unlovable. And that's where she's at. And folks, that's really what this story is about. The story of Ruth is a love story for the unlovable. That's, that's how I would describe it. And unless we read the story like that, we're going to miss the point. Okay, so think about it like that. You've got someone who is feeling hopeless, who feels unlovable, and that's when God shows up. Okay? Judges, the, the book that we studied last, ends with this just deep sense of hopelessness, right? It just says everybody does what's right in their own eyes, and where is God, and just calamity and tragedy one after the other. And we kind of walk away thinking... Who would love a nation like this? <laughs> like, why, why would God stay faithful to people like that? Who keep doing the worst things? That's where Judges kind of leaves us with that sense of hopelessness. But the beauty of it is that that's really what the Bible is about. That's really the, the whole story of the Bible. It's a love story from God to the unlovable. To the undeserving. Where does the story of Ruth begin and end? The town of Bethlehem. That's not a coincidence. It's a beautiful little nugget of God. And I'll go ahead and give you the spoiler alert if you're not if you don't make the connection. That's the place where the savior will one day be born. And that's the place where God is doing this stuff. And guess what? Ruth will be listed in the family tree of Jesus. That's the spoiler. I'm giving it to you now because I want you to see all of this as a backdrop. The story begins with these two women, Naomi and Ruth, who are both, in the eyes of the world, they are damaged goods. Okay? They are grieving women. They have nothing to offer anyone. They are essentially unlovable. In their own eyes and in the eyes of the world, they see no hope. They are... They are pitied by the other women in town, right? But they're completely worthless to the world around them. To everyone except God. And they don't even feel their worth with God yet. Do you sense that? This is where the story begins. But, but what then happens is we find out that God's purposes have no expiration date. Okay? He, he's not... He has not abandoned them. There are no damaged goods in the kingdom of God. 
If you bear the image of God, then you bear the image of God. If you're breathing, then God is not done with you. And if you belong to Him, then your last breath won't even be your last breath. But what Ruth 1 teaches us is this very difficult lesson, but it's an important lesson. Very often on this side of heaven, despair and hope run parallel to each other. We will suffer, but at the same time as believers, we're never suffering without hope. And that's the difficult lesson that Ruth 1 starts to teach us that's going to be throughout this book is that those two things run parallel to each other. Suffering, but with hope. And eventually they come to a head. Um, In fact, I think that's what God is trying to teach us about the meaning of love in a fallen world. God's idea of love, the kind of love that the Bible talks about over and over, the kind of love that we're supposed to have for Him and for other people and that He has for us, it is a love that moves through suffering. Always. And that's what Ruth teaches us. In verse 8, there was this, um, this little phrase, Go back to it. It says right here, Go return each of you to her mother's house and may the Lord deal kindly with you. Deal kindly with you. In Hebrew, Naomi uses the word chesed. Chesed. Chesed is one of the most important words in the Bible. It is the word in the Old Testament that describes the steadfast love of God. So in our call to worship, when we used Psalm 107, it talks about the steadfast love of God. That's that word, hesed. Paul Miller calls it love without an exit strategy. I love that. Love without an exit strategy. It means to act on your commitments even when it doesn't make any sense, even when it hurts, even when it feels wrong, even when it may mean personal loss, to stay the course, to do the hard thing. Naomi tries to send Ruth back to Moab, and that's an example of hesed. That would be loss for her to lose her daughter-in-law. To choose loneliness. Ruth chooses to stay with Naomi. And that is an example of hesed. Because it meant abandoning a better possible future for herself in order to stay with her mother-in-law. It was death to self. It was love at a great cost. And that's That's the centerpiece of this entire story is that kind of love. And I wonder if we can pause for just a moment and think about what does it mean for us to apply that kind of love to our relationships? Okay, 
Is that how we think about, for those of us that are married, is that how we think about marriage? And this is a hard, a hard thing, if you're going to be honest, right? I mean, there are times when that love is stretched thin, right? And you don't feel in love. <laughs> but the real test of it is time and faithfulness and commitment. It's do you press through without an exit strategy? And get, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying there aren't times when God actually gives an exit strategy in some situations, right? But for by and large for most of us, just the daily conflict and the, the difficulties of marriage, do we see that as love without an exit strategy? Okay? What about our commitment to God's church? Now, there are exceptions. The church stops preaching the gospel, or if you move, or we move, or close, or whatever, then that's one thing. But by and large, our commitment to the local church is meant to be an example of Hesed, that we, you know, if things get difficult, we deal with them. We work them out by God's grace. We talk, we pray, um, we stay together. Love without an exit strategy, right? Um, certainly applies in lots of other areas. But what I want to say to you is I want to challenge the culture around us. We live in a culture that is not a culture of steadfast love. This is not a culture of hesed. Okay? Our culture is a culture of self-love. It is a culture where you always have an exit strategy to whatever personal happiness you choose. It is, um, it is a place where we are taught to evaluate our relationships only in terms of what we're going to get out of the arrangement. Am I happy? Are my needs being met? What do I deserve from this relationship? What do I want from it? And I do that. I do that too. I'm part of the reason all my relationships are so difficult. At least, if not more, 50% of it, right? But commitments that are built on self-love or personal happiness or some other selfish thing, those are shallow commitments. They never last. And ultimately, what the Bible would say to us is that it makes us less human to engage that way. It makes us less like the image of God because God created us for this kind of love that lasts, that presses through suffering, that presses through difficulty. He created us for relationships that will weather any storm. And that's what the love of God is like. That's what it's about. Truthfully, you will not find it anywhere else. If you try to find it and squeeze it out of some other relationship, you'll end up destroying it. Because it will never live up to that. Not even your marriage. Not even your children can live up to that. Ultimately, it's found only in Christ. God's love is a self-sacrificial kind of love. The gospel love of the Bible, the love of Jesus, is love without an exit strategy.
even though God's people were really no better than the pagans, God stayed committed. He met their unfaithfulness with faithfulness. He met them at the cross where Jesus suffered great personal loss to stay faithful to us. And that's what this table is about. We come to this table this morning in order to remember the love of God for us in Jesus Christ, that said kind of love. That's what this table is about. We come to it empty and frankly unworthy to sit at it, to come to it. None of us in this room is worthy to come and take that cup off of that table. But when we do that, what we're receiving is Christ. His body broken for us. His blood spilled in our place. And listen, if you're feeling conviction this morning about selfishness, about lack of commitment, about past failures, um, if you're uncomfortable with something that I've said, that's okay. <laughs> it's a good thing. That's the Spirit at work. And, and the goal here is that we come empty, but leave filled. That's the good news. That's the Gospels, that Jesus gives us a seat at the table that we could never earn. We only become worthy in Him. And if you believe that, if you have publicly professed that faith, then you're invited to this table. Um, we all come, any of us, as an act of faith, not because we deserve it or because we've earned it, because we're better than you. Um, and, and there will be no judgment this morning if you don't come, if you don't feel ready, if you don't believe, if you want to talk to God and pray. We would ask you to consider the free offer of the gospel, talk to God about it, but there will be no judgment if you don't come to this table. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for um, Your steadfast love to us and we ask You to empty us of our pride this morning. To remove our shame. Would You help us to come to this table fully dependent on You alone, receiving Christ in faith. Would You fill us with grace and joy and faith, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which He was betrayed, He took bread and after giving thanks, He, he broke it and offered it to His disciples and said, this is My body which is for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of Me. After dinner, He offered the cup and said, this cup represents the new covenant in My blood. Shed for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. Amen. I want to ask you to send one person from each household. You can come and get as many cups as you need for your, your people. And then we will wait and eat together.